Well, let's turn back to our Burgundy hymnals for a hymn, hymn number 284. And then after this, we'll ask Brother Matthew to come speak to us, Matthew Eastland. Then we'll have a hymn. Then Brother Travis will come speak to us. We'll have a hymn after him. And then our Brother Chris will round things out for us this morning. So hymn number 284. Let's all stand as we sing this. Oh, how happy are they who their Savior obey, and whose treasures are laid up above. Tom can never express the sweet comfort and peace of a soul in its earliest love. seated. If you would like, uh, you can go ahead and start turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to spend the most time um, that we're going to spend reading in that passage, and I will uh, refer to or read from the other passages that I have. Brethren, we are very blessed in this congregation. 
we have a man of God who works hard for us, who teaches us faithfully, who invests his time, his energy, and his effort in us. We have several older men who are willing and eager to teach us when they have an opportunity. They study as well. They prepare. They look for opportunities to teach. We are very blessed. But if we come into this house and we don't fulfill our responsibilities as a congregation, if we don't do our part in the worship of God, we're not doing enough. So what I want to look at today are our responsibilities in public worship. Now, Christianity is primarily and first an internal religion. It doesn't matter what we do on the outside nearly as much as what we have on the inside. If we conform here, if we do what's expected of us here in the, in the house of God, but we don't have a heart that follows it, it's worthless. Amen. But there are certain things that are expected in the word of God for us to do in his house. So I want to go over just a few things, and they're very simple. There's nothing complicated here. I just want us to look at it and see if we are doing what we should in the house of God, if we are involving ourselves the way we should. And there, there is a particular order in which I'm doing this, and I'll go into it later why, but there is, there is an emphasis here on certain of these things. And I want you to look at and see which ones apply to you and how they apply to you and what you're doing with them. So first of all, this is not the Jonathan Crosby show, and he said it himself. This is not the Jonathan Crosby show. It's not any individual show except for Jesus Christ's show. Amen. What's said in this house, what's done in this house, is all for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. Who cares who's involved? Amen. And the first thing I want to talk about is teaching. We don't need a THD standing up here. We don't need someone with a master's degree in theology. We don't need someone with a bachelor's degree in divinity or theology. We don't need any of those things. Give me a fisherman who can barely speak his own language so that everyone knows he's a Galilean. If he speaks the word of God, he's speaking the word of God, and he deserves every bit of respect and attention we can get. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, it's stated, For when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And there's more to it there. But it's given as something that should be obvious, that if you know the word of God and you're mature in it, you should be able to teach. Do we have a zeal to do such? God's given us his word. If you know the truth, if you're zealous in it, Men, are you willing to teach? You have opportunities. Do you want to? Now, I'm not going to go into this in detail because Brother Charlie did this fairly recently. But there are opportunities. Are you wanting to? Are you zealous to? Are you excited about teaching God's word? That's part of the worship that's available to us. Now, it's, it's limited in God's word to the men, specifically the older men. But are you willing to when the opportunity comes? I'm just asking, are you going to do something about it? Secondly, we have the giving of thanks. It's a good thing to do. No, it's a command. In God's word, it's given as a command. And you've heard it often enough. It's good to be thankful, but it means nothing if you don't give thanks 
You can be thankful in your heart, but unless you share it with others, you don't encourage them. You don't proclaim God's goodness. Giving of thanks is something that should take place in this house. We find it throughout the New Testament. We find it mentioned if you're going to have your prayers heard, you need to give it with thanks. Are we willing to do that? Again, specifically in this setting, this is more limited to the men. But are we thankful when we have the opportunity? Almost every single week we have an opportunity to be thankful. Are you proclaiming God's goodness to you? I seem to recall something in Romans 1 where it talks about the people didn't glorify God as their creator. They, they glorified the creation more than the creator and were not thankful. Right. And because they were not thankful, what was the result? He gave them over to vile affections. That's right. If we're not thankful, we deserve to have God take from us what we have. Giving of thanks is essential. Right. Then we have public prayer, and that's when I want us to go to um, 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 17. Now, I know, and hopefully most of you know, this passage is about a very simple thing. This is about spiritual gifts, specifically speaking in tongues in the church. But in these verses, we find certain things stated along the way that tell us what should take place in the worship of God. So 1 Corinthians 14, verses 14 through 17. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Else, when thou shalt bless with the spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen? And at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest. For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. We have it stated in this passage about speaking in tongues, stated, as a matter of fact, that prayer is made in public in the congregation. And specifically, that prayer is to be made with the understanding and with the spirit. Now, part of the understanding here is that it needs to be done in a language everyone understands. But when we are praying together as a congregation, are you in it? Are you simply listening to the pretty words that someone's saying up here? Well, honestly, most of the time, most of us don't speak that pretty. We're not that eloquent. But are you praying along? Are you focusing your thoughts? Are you offering up your words to the Lord? It's not listening to one person speaking to God. We're all speaking to God together. We have a responsibility in this house where we're praying together. It's that we're all agreeing in something. Where two or three agree together, the Lord hears. Are we in agreement with one another when someone is praying? This is not something where we sit back and we let religion happen to us, where we let church happen. We're part of it. We can't neglect our portion in it. It's a given. And I have to ask, there are Sundays where it's hard to find volunteers. Why? I hope that we're all speaking to the Lord in private in our own hearts. Brethren, we shouldn't be afraid. We're all speaking to the Lord together. You're merely leading us along with your thoughts. We should be zealous of doing these things. It's expected in the church. It's a given. The the point is being made here by Paul on the fact that it's supposed to happen in the church. So why do we have difficulty some days finding people to volunteer? I just ask, are we participating the way that we should? Then it's only mentioned briefly in here, but it's the statement of saying amen. Now, I don't want anyone to say anything now. I don't need it. Brother Jonathan has said before, he doesn't need anyone to say amen. It's not for him. Nobody needs anyone to say amen. 
But what it does is it builds up the zeal of your brethren around you. Right. Have you ever been stirred up by what was said? Have you ever been encouraged? Have you ever been made happy by it? Why don't you share that with everyone else? Right. And, and uh, I'd like to point out that to this point, I've been going through things that are specifically given to the men to do. Things that the Lord said that these things in his public worship are to be done by the men. But I seem to recall the Old Testament saying, and all the people said, amen. That's right. Sisters, you are as free to do this as anyone else. And I'll tell you, I listen, I hear, and it really enlivens my heart when I hear my sisters saying it as well. There is nothing wrong with it. If you're stirred up by the Lord, stir up your brethren. Saying amen is a statement of affirmation. It's verily, it's truly. State that you love the Lord that way. State that you love his word. Share it with everyone. Get everyone else worked up with you. Be excited about his word. There should be no shame. There should be no fear. Brethren, sisters, glorify the Lord. He's given you an opportunity to glorify his name and his word. So do we do it? And then finally, we have here a statement about singing. Now, it's been dealt with before, and I'm sure you all know it doesn't matter how well you sing. The Lord just wants to hear you sing. Right. doesn't matter if you can't hit a single note. If you're singing to him, it's beautiful. Right. He counts it beautiful. Right. And true children of God who love him will count it beautiful, even if you can't hit anything. doesn't matter. He's pleased, and we're pleased. Do you sing? Do you sing with zeal? Do you sing with understanding? When we look at the words in these books, do we just right. mouth the words? Do we make pretty sounds? I don't care if you have the best choir in the world who sing flawlessly. If they don't care about the words, if they're not considering the words, they're valueless. That's right. I don't care how well you sing in this house. God doesn't care, which is the important thing. He doesn't care. Right. Is your heart in the words that you were singing? And I left this one for last on purpose as well, because if you go to Colossians chapter 3, as I've already said... The place for teaching in this environment is for the men, specifically the older men. That's the one the Lord's delineated that responsibility to. It's for the men. But I I see here in Colossians 3 and verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Yet again, sisters, children, it's not normally your place in the house of the Lord to teach. But when you sing, when you sing the words to the Lord and to us and each other, you're teaching. You are teaching your brethren the truth of the Lord. You're teaching your brethren how to serve him properly. You're teaching them zeal in how you sing. Right. Brethren, we have all these opportunities given to us. We have opportunities to show our reverence for the Lord, to show how we love him, to show our zeal for him. This is not a place where we come to watch someone else perform. If that's why you're here, you're in the wrong place. We're not very good at performing, and that's not what the point is here. 
Right. So find someplace else, please. We don't want someone with that spirit here. But if you've come because you want to serve the Lord, then this is a place where you have a role. You have things that you can do. So the question comes to us, what will we do? Will those who have the opportunity be willing and zealous to teach? Will we have people who are willing to give thanks for the goodness of the Lord? Will we have people willing to pray, to lead us in prayer? Do we have people who are willing to stir up the zeal of others by saying amen? And are we singing as we should? Don't simply come in and let church happen to you. Participate the way you should and please the Lord. Thank you, Matthew. Excellent. Turn in your hymnals, your burgundy hymnals, to 213. Hymn number 213. And let's sing about the body that Matthew has just exhorted us to our duties within. The Church of Jesus Christ. Hymn number 
Amen. Amen. Brother Travis. I hope doing this study to present what I have for you today from the Lord that allowed me to do this study will bless you as much as it blessed me and instruct you as much as it instructed me. Amen. Um, for I'm, I am a sinner and I'm, I'm worse than anyone else who stood up here and talked to you today and who will stand up here and talk to you. And it is not my words, though. It is the Lord's. And I will trust that His words will be conveyed to you simply today. I wanted to speak on all 19 of the perils in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But it would take a very long time, possibly a year, to do something like that. But So I chose verse 5. So if you all open up 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. For I believe that this really will sum up the other 18 perils. Um, we'll read that to you. Verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. I believe that there is a form of godliness, and there is true godliness. There's one that's based on the flesh, and there's one that's based on the spirit. There's, there's a form based on this world and man, and there's a one that's formed based on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I think of a form of godliness, I think of um, fleshly. A lot of times I'll think of, when I'm looking at the perilous times, I'm thinking of, of you know, this big, magnificent church, you know, huge uh, stadium seat, and, you know, the pastor's wearing flip-flops, preaching frivolously, frivolously, you know, people are just, you know, running around rampant, don't even know how many members you have. Um, but when I was reading this and studying this, I, I, I thought to myself, you know, I, I really, maybe a small church, a conservative one, a, one like this maybe, um, one that we have a form of godliness, where we have a part, we, we are, we live godly, and we try to live godly. See, because when I think of a form of godliness, I don't think of what we're doing is wrong, but sometimes maybe why we do it could be wrong. Right. Also, I think of, when I think of a form of godliness, I think of fables, wives' fables, traditions of men. Or going through the motions. It may not be fables or, or traditions of men. It may be uh, God's law, but just going through the motions. See, when I think of a small church, and, you know, the big church, usually a liberal church, they don't, you know, they're not very conservative. But when I think of a carnal Christian in this prophecy, in, in specifically, um, carnal, you know, they call the law, in the, Paul called the law carnal and fleshly. So I think of the Pharisees, 
they were they were a very very conservative sect. And uh, Matthew uh, verse 23, uh, chapter 23, verse 23 through 28 says, Jesus is speaking. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat, and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter with our outward godliness. But within, they are full of extortion and excess. Right. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that outside of them. Cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside they may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are with, within full of dead men's bones and of uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. What form are we? What form am I? And I thought about this. Why? What, what is the reason I come here? What's the reason why I'm preaching up here? What's the reason why I'm wearing a tie right now? Is it because of traditions of men? Am I going through the motions? Or is it because I believe and take hold of the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Spirit? Right. Which propels me to godliness and causes me to be godly. I wanted to preach on godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says... And y'all can turn there. I'm going to be reading fast. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. See, true godliness is a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and reverence. For his character and laws. See, without the Spirit guiding us, and which faith is the fruit of the Spirit, right. without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and believing in that gospel and his promises, we will never have true godliness or profess it. See, we need to take hold of his promises. And when we take hold of his promises... Our life, our actions, our motives, our thoughts are moved and motivated and transformed and shaped by those promises. Timothy was to preach this in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 7 through 11.
but refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Peter understood. He understood about this godliness that I'm speaking of and taught it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, 3 through 5. Verse 3, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye may be partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Paul lived this, and he spoke about living it. And uh, when I was reading this, there is no mention of godliness in the book of Galatians. But he did talk about godliness and living godly. And Paul had a form of godliness before he was professing true godliness. Right. And he even speaks of that in Galatians. Um, go to Galatians, uh, if you'd like, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knew that, he, that his godliness was propelled by the love he had for him. We need to renew our minds of this. And, and we need to renew our minds of the promises. And hopefully I'm renewing your minds that those promises need to propel us to godliness. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 through 3. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Amen. Remember that Paul was both forms. Remember that my point here to get across to you all is that we don't fall into that form of godliness as our brother Matthew was just preaching on, that we need to live godly lives and profess godliness for the right reasons. 
Right. Not for the wrong. Not because a man tells us to. Not because the traditions of men. Not because our fathers, fathers, and fathers, and fathers have done this. But because the Lord Jesus Christ right. died for our sins. And that we want to live godly for Him. And do these things for Him. Thank you. Amen. Turn in your red hymnals to hymn number 257. Hymn number 257. Let's put before us a picture that would help us with that motivation to have a spiritual and a godly motivation in hymn number 257. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Tis a Christ life and rejected, yes, my soul, tis he, tis he.
Amen. Brother Chris. The subject I selected to speak on today is an important act of obedience specified for New Testament believers. That is baptism. While it is impossible to exhaustively cover every aspect of the Bible's teachings on baptism in 10 minutes, I would just like to cover just a couple basic tenets. Our position on baptism is held and understood by most Baptists, but the great majority of those calling themselves Christians would disagree with us. Let's look briefly at what we believe regarding this subject, why we believe it, and see if we can answer just a a few of the objections, seeing the majority of Christianity believes differently on the subject than we do. We are New Testament Christians. If we want to learn about baptism for New Testament Christianity, we should look at the New Testament. If a conversation on baptism starts with Isaiah 52 about Christ sprinkling many nations with his blood or goes to Nahum and the Syrian jumping in the Jordan River or goes to an Old Testament priest dipping his finger in a substance and sprinkling it in various directions, we've started in the wrong testament. Let's start in the New Testament and see what we can briefly learn. First, I would like to start with the mode of baptism. There are generally three modes practiced among professing Christianity. Aspersion, which is sprinkling, effusion, which is pouring, and immersion, which is dipping or plunging. Rather than me expressing what we ought to believe about those three, let's read some Bible passages regarding mode and see if it immediately becomes clear. Romans 6, 1 through 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. What does the phrase, so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death, mean in verse 3? How are we buried with him by baptism into death in verse 4? How are we planted together in the likeness of his death? And how will we be in the likeness of his resurrection in verse 5? Verse 5 gives us a strong clue by use of the word likeness. Baptism is like a death and like a resurrection and like planting. How is baptism like those items? If you immerse, you have a very clear picture by being buried under water and being raised again out of the water. If you subscribe to baptism by another mode, 
this comparison is lost. Another passage, Colossians 2, 11, uh, 11 and 12. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. How are we buried and risen with Christ in baptism? Unless baptism looks like or resembles a burial and a resurrection. If you sprinkle or pour, the comparison is lost. One of my favorite, 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? This verse occurs in the middle of a chapter listing many arguments for proving the resurrection of the body. Was Paul rebuking the Corinthians for getting proxy baptisms for their dead relatives? If so, the verse doesn't make sense either in or out of context. (laughs) This verse is one of Paul's arguments for the resurrection of the body and therefore must carry some meaning in that context. The clause, if the dead rise not at all, directly implies that baptism must have something to do with resurrection. What is the connection? It looks like and symbolizes a resurrection. This fits Paul's context. He's using the fact that the Corinthians' baptisms look like resurrections to prove to them that there must be a bodily resurrection coming for them. Amen. There are other verses we could look at, but I want to move on and consider the subject of baptism. That is, who ought to be baptized And are there any prerequisites or criteria? And again, I've got a significant amount of passages here. You can try to turn, but uh, if you wish to listen, that'll be just fine. Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Acts 8, 12, But when they believed, believed, Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon, this is Simon the sorcerer, himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wandered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Acts 18.8, And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Acts 19.4, then Paul then said, Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts eighteen thirty six to 38. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. 
Now, that one may be the clearest, uh, stating belief and confession of Jesus Christ as a prerequisite to baptism. If you're using a version newer than your King James, you may not be able to find verse 37. It is missing. One of the clearest prerequisites for baptism is missing in modern versions. Acts 2.38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Here repentance is a criteria. What did Jesus, Philip, Paul, and Peter all require prior to baptism? Belief or repentance or a good conscience from the person desiring baptism. Can infants believe or repent or give the answer of a good conscience? then they are not the proper subjects for baptism. Let me chase one rabbit here uh, regarding baptism of infants. As you know, there are several household baptisms mentioned in the New Testament. And as I was reading commentaries and other things online, many say that these household baptisms must have included infants. This is only a supposition but infant baptizers usually list it as a proof uh, for their position. There are five household baptisms in the New Testament. Let's look at them briefly and see whether they might have included infants. The first was the household of Cornelius. Acts 10.2, he was a devout man of God and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. That is a description of Cornelius' house. Now, by the time they got to baptism at the end of Acts chapter 10, it also included his kins, uh, kinsmen and his near friends. But the Holy Ghost came on all of them before Peter baptized them. Everyone already feared God. The Philippian jailer, his household, Acts 16.31, And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. They were told to believe on the Lord and they would be saved, him and his house. Every, everyone that Paul baptized followed his instructions and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Crispus Gaius, Acts 18. And Crispus... The ruler of the, the chief ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all his house, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Again, whoever a household might include, the text tells us they all believed. Lydia's household was baptized, but there are no details given about her household. Paul mentions baptizing the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 1.16 only that he baptized them. However, the same man and his household are mentioned at the end of the book of 1 Corinthians as his household being addicted to ministry. Do infants addict themselves to ministry? Rather, they are accustomed to being ministered to. We believe there are five qualifications for a scriptural baptism. Today, I've only talked about two of them. The others are the proper administrator, the proper design, and the, uh, 
and one more. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, this is what we've had time to look at today. Uh, Jude wrote that it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Amen. Scriptural baptism is a teaching of Scripture that we ought to earnestly contend for. Amen. Thank you. Again, I, I like the thread I see in the three things that the Lord brought to us. We had the responsibilities of public worship. The fact, as was amply said, this is not an entertainment session to where we have a hired entertainer who gets up and speaks to us or sings to us or whatever. This is a communal activity that we're doing. All the men should be apt to teach in their households. And when opportunity presents itself, you should avail yourself of the opportunity to share what the Lord has shared with you with the congregation. We can always give thanks. We can all pray, whether out loud or silently with whoever is leading us in prayer. We should all be involved in that activity. We can all say amen. And I hope I'm an example of that, brethren, and I'm from a Presbyterian background. Shame on all you Baptists who I can out amen. And singing. We all are teaching and instructing one another when we sing. And just think about it, brethren. If it's a song that we've selected that's appropriate, you don't have to worry about the message, right? You don't have to worry that maybe I misspoke something. No, it's already laid out there for you. As we go through that worship of God, we need to make sure that we're not just going through a form. As important as a godly form is, it's dead if that's all you've got is that form. That's right. We need to make sure that it's being motivated by hearts, as Travis amply said, that we're motivated. We've got an inner motivation to serve Jesus Christ, to love Him. And that's why He chose that hymn that we sang afterwards is because that's what ought to motivate us. The fact that Jesus Christ died for us. He gave his life for us. What can I not give for him? Oh, all he asks is that I come here and sing his praise and thank him, you know, and be enthusiastic, you know, pray and sing. That, that's what he requires of me. He requires me to live my life for him. He gave up life. I should be willing to do those things for him. In baptism, baptism, either for those of you that haven't been baptized, it's something you need to consider. It's a proper form of righteousness. It's something that we ought to have. For those of us who have been baptized, we need to remember, why were we baptized? It's a picture. It's a picture of what my Lord went through for me. He died. He was buried. And He rose victorious from the grave. It's also a picture of how I should live my life, right? I should live as if I'm dead to this world and have been raised to walk in newness of life for Him. And it's another picture, a third picture. A picture of the fact that one day, if the Lord tarries His coming, 
just like we saw our sister, my body's going to be planted in the ground. And then he's going to come back and break open that casket, break open that sepulcher, and I'm going to be raised in a new body to be with him forever. That's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. Ah, wonderful. Thank you, Lord, for these things. Please turn in your burgundy hymnals for our brother Chris to hymn number 251. Hymn number 251. And please stand and join me as we sing this. Hymn number 251. Gracious Father, we just ask that you would see our love and our devotion to you this day. Father, if we have said, thought, felt anything that was inappropriate, Lord, forgive it. Reveal it to us, Lord, so that our personal and corporate service before you would be pure and spotless in your sight. Lord, dismiss us now with thy blessing. And grant, Father, that with whatever time we have this day, or any other days following, Lord, that we might serve and worship and glorify you in everything we do in our lives. For we ask these things in the glorious, blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.